You're live on the Science Verse Spook Show. This is KOS The Scientist. This is episode number nine, and the title is Biden or Bust in Bidenomics, The Risk Factors. Let's dive right in. So, of course, the election is coming up, and, you know, you we saw Kamala Harris hold a 50th anniversary celebration of hip-hop with Too Short and Common and some of the journalists from the Grio and kind of some of the White House affiliated social media influencers. And you had these performances, you had Lil Wayne there, and you also have a college tour that's going to HBCUs such as North Carolina A&T. But the college tour is very specific in going into battleground states, states that will be highly contested. So the election season has started and seeing the, the hip hop backyard party with Kamala, Too Short, and you're starting to see the activity on the HBCU campuses. So we know that campaigning has started. And this episode, we're going to talk about Biden and where this election is likely headed and the, the risk factors. So first, I want to start off with what I had to say on April 12, 2021, with my prior podcast, Go Hard or Go Home. The title of this particular episode in April of 2021 was 3Bs, Biden, Bitcoin, and Bubbles. So of course, I was right on all three. I could pat myself on the back. I do believe that the more we are intimate with the facts and factors, with the reality. And the more you know, we research, the more experience we have, we start developing predictive intelligence. And so over time, there's less surprises, there's less frustrations, right? The more we know, we can come up with stronger estimates on what's going to happen in the future. And so, of course, back then I'm talking about Biden, but my main thing when talking about Biden was that we should have very low expectations. Don't expect much, right? And I was talking about the cabinet architecture of the Biden administration as being predictive. So let's go to this clip right now. Here you go. I was so excited on the political religion of that time uh, in terms of the idea of uh, someone that I knew had read the, the final call, someone who came from Reverend Wright's church I looked at a lot of the symbolic factors, uh, and of course I was optimistic, but the intellectual flaw I had in 2008 was I didn't really inspect the cabinet of Barack Obama, who the people that he would hire, I didn't inspect that. I didn't inspect the politics in the back. I was just going off the politics in the front like many of you. If I would have inspected uh, the politics in the back, I would have known that the big banks, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, the big Silicon Valley, big tech people, Google, Facebook, that Barack Obama structured his cabinet early on for the swamp and elites, meaning it was never structured uh, to be progressive. It wasn't, it was structured for elites and kind of do some of the same stuff and actually make the, the racial in, income inequality worse uh, in the United States. When you look at, when you look at 
the Geithner, the Larry Summers, you know, the Eric Holder, uh, who, you know, represented uh, Purdue Pharma, which we've talked about on this uh, podcast, are uh, UBS, that when you look at the Obama cabinet, this is the corporate confederacy. These are the people who are running America. So it wouldn't be intelligent for me or anyone else, in my view, to expect anything from Obama based on how he was structured, who he had to report and answer to. Uh, and so it just wouldn't be intelligent for me, uh, looking back, to expect anything because the way he structured his advisors and cabinet, who those people were in terms of lobbyists, and they're connected to the ruling class, nothing's going to change. When it's structured like that, you shouldn't be acting like a Santa Claus or Christmas in terms of hoping for something that's not structured for, you know, material change. So you don't get into a political religion with Obama or something else or Biden when you start inspecting what's on the inside, the facts and how things are structured. Okay. So when you look at Biden in terms of folks from the military industrial complex, uh, lobbyists in big tech, when you look at the folks that are in his cabinet, you shouldn't be overreaching and expecting something substantial that I don't think that would be intelligent because he's not structured that way. When you inspect his advisors, such as his chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, Ron Klain, uh, if you're not familiar with him, the Biden chief of staff, he's the one who let the police write the crime bill. Uh, Biden brought him back, who helped, of course, Ron Klain helped him with the politics of the crime bill. And of course, the record shows that the police wrote the crime bill. And Biden and Ron Klain uh, sat right there and allowed the police to write the crime bill. Didn't really consider uh, how lopsided a bill like that could be uh, if the police, the police unions, uh, they're allowed to just write the bill. You're not in the room. Just Ron Klain, Biden, and the police. So, you know, I want to leave you with this, uh, with Biden is, I wouldn't expect anything, a goddamn thing from Biden, okay? He told his donors nothing is really going to change. And he structured his administration and cabinet in a way that nothing is likely to change. Obama gave, sold you hope, you know, hope, change we can believe in, you know, all these kind of terms. You don't want to go back to sleep in thinking that Biden is going to do something different. These Biden and Obama, in a way, are like the same political animal. Essentially, who they answer to is not going to be you. They are structured with the status quo establishment, the corporate confederacy, the folks who have been running America and will continue to run America. The pain was that his lowest ever. The African-American community stood up again for me. We always hit my back, and I'll have yours. I said at the outset. All right, so you also heard on the clip after that was Biden's big election speech. After kind of it was clear he won, he said that the black voters always had his back 
and he promises to have our back. And at the time, some of the more blue check Democrats, they were loving and they were praising Biden for saying they were feeling good about themselves. They were saying that they liked that Biden said that he would always have the black voters back. And I'm sitting back and like, whoa, you know, because Biden says he's going to have your back. You guys are going to go right into this type of spook because somebody is selling the spook to you, particularly a, a career politician. That doesn't mean we have to buy it. Right. So what type of credibility does Biden have where he just says he's going to have your back during his term and you just believe it? You know, whatever somebody's selling, you're buying. And I knew then, of course, Biden is selling a lot of spook. One is even if he wanted to do something big for black Americans, even if he had that intent there, right, just based on how the country and the two political parties are structured, are malstructured, it would be hard to get something done for black Americans. But, you know, you had some of the people, the believers in a lot of the Democratic Party believing and feeling like, hey, I like what Biden is saying, but, you know, it's a spook. So let's talk about where things stand here. So most of the major national polls show that Biden and Trump are at about 50-50. Essentially, this guy, Trump, he has criminal cases across the country, and he's still running 50-50 with Biden. The way I read that, I read that as that's a big red flag for the Democrats, meaning that if somebody has multiple criminal cases across the country. You know, he's coming in, taking mug shots. And you guys are talking on CNN, MSNBC, like this stuff is a really big deal to the voters and to the country. But if he can run 50-50 with these court cases, that's a big plus for the Trump side. Okay. So with all the criminal cases priced in, the country doesn't really care. Okay. So there's higher priorities in terms of in the voter's mind than what's in the MSNBC, CNN mind. And we have the, the data and the polling suggesting that Trump is running very strong as this campaign season is kicking off. So some of the polling out there is Washington Post, Ipsos. This poll showed just 17% of Black Americans would be enthusiastic if Biden wins another term. So I'm going to repeat that again. This came out in May. 17% of Black Americans would be enthusiastic if Biden wins another term. And so when I look at this situation, there's just a lack of excitement, right? And it's not just me estimating that it's a lack of excitement. It's just the poll, the polling has been very consistent that there's nothing really the Democrats or Biden is doing that would excite the black population. You know, these are the Democrats that can't even pass a George Floyd police reform bill. They can't pass a voting rights legislation that the NAACP is pushing. These are like very conservative ideas, but there's nothing Democrats can show you materially that would get the people excited. And so, of course, this is another big red flag is you're at the point where your diversity currency, like, hey, this is the party that had Barack Obama. This is the party that has Kamala Harris. You know, at a certain point, people start catching up to the diversity spook and symbolism where you've already used that card. You've already used that. We've seen what happens if there's a black elected official. Okay, somebody who looks like us, they're in this 
high seat. We've seen that, but it doesn't, it's not really materially connected to me. Like it's good symbolism. Hey, the country shows that it's progressing symbolically just based how it looks on the surface. But deep down structurally, we don't see things moving. It's not really material for me. I can't eat the symbolism. My children, my daycare expenses, my health expenses, my prospects in terms of business, in terms of financing, the real structural realities day to day, the people are going to be feeling what I would call diversity spook. Hey, look at us. The country's progressing. Look at these black elected officials. The country's moving so far. That's like a credit card that's like exhausted now, right? So cool, you got a black elected official here and there, but how is that really relevant to us here in the streets? It appears on the surface that things are moving forward, but I don't see things moving forward in my bank account, okay? I don't see things moving forward in terms of the structural reality in my city, in my community, or in the country, okay? So another one, this is a CNN poll. The CNN poll that came out this month, more than 60% of Democratic aligned voters want someone other than Biden, but they didn't have someone else in mind. Okay, so 60% of Democratic aligned voters, the majority, they don't want Biden. Okay, so that right there is going to impair your ability to generate excitement because you have selected somebody that the majority don't impose. You're the Democratic Party, right? You're for the majority. You're for, you know, people having a voice. Everybody should have a voice, but the majority of Democrats don't even want Biden, okay? And then only 17% of Black Americans would be excited if he won. So another poll, this is the same CNN poll from September, only 26% say he Biden has the stamina and sharpness to serve effectively as commander in chief. Only 76% of Americans say they are seriously concerned his age could affect his ability to serve a full term if elected. So there's a lack of confidence. Like you want to run an 80 year old man in these very challenging times. We don't know if he's up to it. So there's a a big concern. You know, it's not propaganda. It's not Fox News. This is just what the CNN poll is saying. So another poll, this is ABC News, Washington Post from the month of May. This poll found that just 52% of black respondents approved of Biden's performance as president, down from 82% when he took office in 2021. So you see what I was saying in 2021 you can see statistically that the spook has deflated. So Biden is coming out saying, hey, you have my back. I owe my election to the black voters. And then some people buying into the spook, at least it was at 82% when he took office. And then now you see the the reality is hit and the spook has deflated down to 52%. Now, my estimate didn't really change. Of course, the numbers are just coming my way as time goes on in terms of my original estimate, because from my perspective, I know I have a pretty good idea how the system works. And I know have a pretty good idea of who Biden is and who he isn't, and also who the country and how this system is engineered. And so the 30 point drop in support, this is from the Washington Post ABC News poll, the 30% drop in support is the lowest of Biden's presidency and comes as he prepares for reelection. 
Furthermore, 27% of black voters said they would probably or definitely vote for former President Donald Trump or lean toward him, over double his support in 2020. Trump won just 12% of the black vote in the last presidential election. And so a famous pollster mentioned Cornell Belcher, that's his name. You know, he's a real Democratic Party establishment guy. You may see him on uh, MSNBC. He was saying he's discounting the polling against Biden and the threat of MAGA getting up to 20 or even, you know, 25% of the black vote. And he's pissed off on social media. This guy, this pollster, Cornell Belcher, he says that because black people think Trump is racist, that the polling numbers, they can't be right. There's, you're supposed to be suspect. Hey, there's not enough. You didn't ask enough people. I, I know how everybody thinks. You know, I'm a MSNBC Democrat pollster. So when the, when the data comes back that, hey, this is the data is trying to tell the Democrats that you guys, it may be too late. You know, it's probably too late, but you guys better wake up because the way you guys box, the way the Democrats, Democratic Party establishment, the way they box the Black American voter is they're very simplistic. They're very reductionist, right? They'll say, hey, because Trump is so racist to us and because the polls say that he's racist, uh, that means they're not going to come out and vote at a 20% clip or a 25% clip, doubling what they've seen before. And so what the establishment doesn't understand is that the black voters, the black American voters are more multi-factor than, than we are given credit. So there's a, enough voters out there that could say Biden and Trump are racist. We don't, you know, nobody's doing anything really for us anyway. So when I take it as an issue, when I add up all the issues, right, somebody could be, hey, I'm a conservative Christian, right? I'm conservative on the moral issues. Okay, I may be conservative on the tax issues. I may be more on the right side with immigration. So as the two parties can't really show anything real aggressive for the black American voter. Right. If it's kind of a a, the perception is more closer to neutral. Hey, the Democratic Party is handcuffed for, for doing anything really on the racial front. So if things are tighter between the parties on the racial factor, on the black factor, and I start going down the list, a considerable amount of Black American voters are going to side with some Republican Party issues or factors. We, you, you, the more you put us all into this simplistic box, Trump is racist. That means I'm all going to be going out there, Million Man March, Democratic Party. The higher probability the Democratic Party is going to get stuck. They're going to get stuck again. And so this leads into the Biden or bust as the uh, the first risk factor. Uh, and so I'm going to start with the decision. I'm going to start with the decision, the Democratic Party, years before the election, uh, that the party elites, including the opposition party led by Bernie Sanders and some others, is that they're all kind of in the back room saying Biden is our man. So, you know, the old guy we're going to bet everything. We're going to put all of our eggs in the Biden basket and we're going to decide early. We know what's best for the country and it's Biden. AOC, Bernie Sanders, some of the most socialist people out there, they're all crowning Biden as the man. And so 
when they do this, they start to lean against a fair primary process, a competitive process where the best person is going to come out that competition. But now the scales are all tilted because pretty much the entire party has decided years before the primary that Biden is our guy. And so uh, this is a Biden or bust strategy. So when you think about the Democrats deciding that they're going to put all their eggs in Biden, who's very unpopular, particularly with the black American voter, it's a very risky strategy. But let's 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 get a little bit deeper into this. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she had an opportunity to de-risk the potential that she dies and a Republican nominates a conservative justice that's going to be more aligned with the Republican Party. Okay, so people were telling her when she was 77, she already had health complications. Okay, and they were telling her, hey, while Obama's president, why don't you just fall back? Why don't you allow Obama to uh, nominate somebody else who's younger because these are lifetime ap- appointments. And so my point here is that these are risk management decisions. Okay. So uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she says that no, and I'm fine. You know, like they're saying, Biden is fine. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's like, she's 77. She, I got health issues. I got problems, but I'm fine. And of course, what happens? She also says, I don't want Biden. I don't want Obama to appoint somebody to replace me. I want Hillary Clinton. Okay. So there is, she's very confident that Clinton is going to be the next president and then everything is going to go smooth and my replacement is going to be under Clinton. Okay. So the Democrats had a, a big problem with overconfidence. Okay. And so when the elites who are running the party and they're making all these big decisions, they get real big headed. They know everything. They know better than anybody else about these issues. And so they make decisions. And then the people who go out and vote, those are the people who actually, the Democrats who flood the voting booths, going out in the rain, going out in the snow, bringing their whole family members. When these people make really bad risk management decisions, right, the burden is on them, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg is dead, but now, MAGA has all their people on the court. And of course, MAGA smartly put somebody who's going to go in the paint for a lot of the issues that they care about. And they're going to take advantage of Democrats slipping up or Ruth Bader Ginsburg slipping up on that decision not to step down at 77. And so also you have James Comey. So There's research, and Nate Silver was one. He was at the New York Times at the time. But there's people out there who estimate that James Comey, his letter uh, from the FBI talking about the Hillary Clinton investigation and his press conferences right before the election, right before the election, that this tilted the scale where Hillary Clinton lost. Okay. So when these Democrats out there blaming everybody and like, Hey, black men didn't come out. I'm mad. Or it's white women's fault or this and that it's everybody's fault. The Democrats lose, but you notice that they never really punch up. They don't really hold the leadership accountable for what decisions that the leadership makes, including Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, James Comey. A lot of these outcomes 
This is going to be people who have a lot of power and a lot of money. Okay, this is not going to be people on the bottom. It's not going to be the black grandma in Watts or Detroit or Baltimore who didn't come out, wasn't excited for Hillary Clinton or the black grandfather in Memphis who doesn't come out and and people are blaming the black voters who didn't come out. There were strategic decisions made. There was a certain handling of risk management that really made the Democrats get stuck in that particular election. So James Comey, what he said, and of course, James Comey, that's Obama's man in the FBI. Okay. So he's with the Democratic Party. Okay. So Hillary is his favorite. Hillary Clinton is his favorite. And so he said that he was so confident that Trump didn't have a chance and Hillary Clinton was going to be president. It tilted things where he wanted to protect against a conspiracy theory. So He's really confident. Hillary Clinton is real confident. Obama's really confident. The party officials are really confident. And they have a certain risk management orientation where they're not taking Trump seriously. And so Comey said in his book that he regrets this mistake, but he never really, he never would have agitated this area with this FBI investigation and Hillary Clinton if he wasn't so confident that Clinton was going to win. And so the reason I bring this up is because if the Democratic Party loses, if Biden loses, the first place to start, the first place I would start is at the top, right? You're not going to be looking like if, if Black American voters don't show up in really strong numbers. Uh, it's not the voters' fault, right? These powerful people, these people are running the government. These people are connected with all the billionaires and all the big corporations, right? If something doesn't fall the Democrats' way, the right orientation is that we have to look at the coach, the owners, right? We got to look at the decisions, the play calling. We got to look at the very top and how they handle these risk management decisions. And of course, this goes back to, hey, it's your decision. It's your decision two years before the election to say you're running an unpopular Biden, that you're not going out and finding more good options. You're not working your ass off to go find some backups, some, some, some more options. If you want to put all the eggs in the Biden basket and that stuff goes bust and Trump's beats you again, that's your fault. The accountability has to be at the top. So moving on, the next factor. So we have a risk factor for Biden. The first one, of course, is just the risk orientation of the Democratic Party. It has been a problem. The risk management at the very top of the problem at the party in terms of how they handle their risk and their judgments has been a problem. Okay. And it looks like it can, it's going to continue to be a problem because now you're going with this, all my eggs are in the Biden uh, basket. It's Biden or bust. So the risk orientation of the party is factor number one. So the factor number two is illegal immigration. And so let's go to this recent clip from New York City's Mayor Eric Adams. This city around in 20 months. And then what happened? Started with a madman down in Texas, decided he wanted to bust people up to New York City. 110,000 migrants left to feed, clothes, house, educate the children, wash their laundry sheets, give them everything they need, health care, 
And this team here, we stated, let's do everything possible before we have to push it out into neighborhoods and communities. Month after month, I stood up and I said, this is going to come to a neighborhood near you. Well, we're here. We're here. We're getting no support on this national crisis. And we're receiving no support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. We're getting 10,000 migrants a month. One time we were just in Venezuela. Now we're getting Ecuador. Now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico. Now we're getting Western Africa. Now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We got a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut Every service in this city is going to be impacted, all of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. How many of you organized to stop what they're doing to us? How many of you were part of the movement to say, we're seeing what this mayor is trying to do and they're destroying New York City? It's going to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. I said it last year when we had 15,000. I'm telling you now, with 110,000, the city we knew, we're about to lose. So you heard Eric Adams talk about, you know, he has billions and billions of dollars missing from his budget that's related to migrants. And after this, a lot of people, they're not used to seeing a black Democrat talk like that on problems related to migrants. Okay. And so you saw a lot of the Democrats, kind of the MSNBC White House establishment Democrats so when they heard Eric Adams, they said that he was sounding like Trump because he said that his city would be destroyed. If you destroy my budget, if you're taking billions of dollars out my budget, you can destroy the city. I don't have money for these public services, right? And why should a, a black American child in Harlem, why should they get less because of these decisions that don't involve us locally? where these migrants are coming in and busting up our local budget. Why should some of these children out here who are citizens, do they get their lunches cut? Do they get childcare, daycare cut? Do they get more people in the classroom, fewer teachers, less security, less public safety? So in the real world, of course, the real world factors, it starts to the mathematics of it all, it starts to, to cause friction with the ideology of the party. You know, the ideology of the party is, hey, we need to protect the immigrants and, you know, we need to be on this side. We need to be politically correct and all this other stuff. And, and Eric Adams, he's coming in and saying, look, 
my budget is $12 billion short. Somebody's going to have to deal with this. This is the real world out here. I'm not talking about politics now. And so that's the mentality that a lot of us need to have. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of Eric Adams, but I look at issues one by one, right? And so on this issue, I'm sympathetic to him because it's like you and your personal life. Somebody could have all these stories and be talking about all this different stuff, but at the end of the day, you have to balance your own budget. You got to pay rent. You got to pay for whatever responsibilities you have. And all this ideology and all this other stuff you're talking, that has nothing to do with the map in terms of me taking care of my responsibilities. And so the MSNBC Democratic Party establishment, when they hear Eric Adams, they're like, no, he's talking like Trump. Man, he's sounding like MAGA. No, he's sounding like an accountant, fool. This is somebody who has a responsibility to his city and he needs the money. All this pundit activity where all these pundits are getting you know, millions of dollars and they're talking about all this Democratic Party stuff on MSNBC or CNN, they can talk all that feel-good stuff all they want to. They can be idealistic all they want to, okay? But at the end of the day, these mathematical calculations and these budget matters, they need to be solved. Okay, so no, he's not sounding like Trump. He's sounding like an accountant and somebody who is concerned that he's going to have to start cutting services for the citizens in his city. And so when I started looking into this more, immigration is not, I can't say this is this has been my subject yet. I haven't really been very interested in it. So it's not something that I've been deep into. We got to pick our battles and immigration hasn't been at the top of my list. But the more I looked into this, one of the things that stood out to me was Title 42. So essentially, when the pandemic hit, there are restrictions in terms of not processing migrants when they apply for asylum. But with the pandemic, essentially, Trump was allowed to to pretty much say, look, the migrants are a health threat. We have a pandemic going on, so they can't just wait years to be processed for asylum because of the health threat. They have to go back now. Okay, so uh, essentially that ended under Biden. So it recently ended under Biden. So with the Title 42 changes, you're seeing a uptick in migrants and illegal immigration. So here's this excerpt. Experts expect this will lead to a surge in immigration across the U.S.-Mexico border. And there are signs that it has already begun. The number of migrants crossing the border has already increased from a norm of about six to 7,000 per day late last year to 10,000 per day on Monday and Tuesday this week. That's just in just a day, 10,000 a day. And the streets of many border cities are filling up with migrants seeking entry to the U.S., Okay, so we're talking about risk factors, particularly for Biden. Okay, so when I started looking at this, I said, man, because he has a real crisis on his hands, right? So all because the CNN and MSNBC and the mainstream media is not talking about this, that doesn't mean a full-blown crisis is not out there, right? You're seeing it in Chicago. You're seeing it in New York City with Eric Adams that there's a real crisis out there in the United States. Now, the mainstream media, they're going to most likely have an orientation 
I don't want to hurt my man Biden, right? So they're not going to be talking about it a great deal. But when you take a step back and start looking at everything, there's a full-blown crisis in the United States that's related to immigration. Okay, so to understand this, we got to take a step back from some of the superficial narratives. And hey, I just want to understand it better. It's not about which side or a lot of the political game banging that goes back and forth. We got to take a step back and understand it scientifically. So one of the things that caught my eye when I started looking into this is that I looked on the the government website and Biden said that it's kind of like he's bragging that he's adding 350 border agents. Okay. So he's saying that he has more border agents than any prior president and he's only adding 350. And when I looked into this, I said, Hey, if Biden is adding 350 agents and right, Eric Adams, he's talking about a hundred thousand in New York city alone. And then just yesterday, Biden said he was going to, he announced permits for, I believe, 470,000 Venezuelans. So those are permits for the migrants from Venezuela. Biden is coming out saying, hey, 470,000 work permits. And when I looked at the Biden press release that came out, you know, it's like, hey, there's something funny going on. You're talking about 350 border agents. And so I went to chat GPT and I just wanted to just you know, start asking some questions and running some numbers. And so like, hey, what would happen if you sent a billion of the Ukraine money? What would happen if you just hire border agents? Just a billion of the Ukraine money. And so the border agent, the average salary is 70,000. So that would give you 14,286 new border agents. Okay. With just 1 billion, you know, there's all type of money flying out the government to Ukraine, to military related initiatives. So with a billion at 70,000 each, you would get 14,286. Obviously this is not precise. This is a very dirty estimate. So I acknowledge that, but it gives you a sense that, hey, if there's a full blown crisis in the United States, proportionately, somebody's telling you that they're gonna put 350 border agents on a crisis Oh, I got 350 border agents that they're not, there's something funny going on. Like the math is not math. And so why would I calculate border agents is because that there are constitutional and legal restrictions on using the U.S. military. And so you could have presidential candidates like Vivek saying he would put the military at the border by just doing some really quick research is that there's a reason Trump was not able to do that. We're not going to get into all of that, but there are legal limitations with using the U.S. military. So when you hear people talking about resourcing the border, they're going to be talking about National Guards in a support role, just a support role. So the next thing is like, hey, you're, why don't you just put more border agents on the border if, if you're so about it at the border? And of course, Democrats do say that they're about it at the border. But when you're talking about 350 border agents and you're talking about millions of people coming over here, there's something more going on here. And so when I looked into this issue, I kept coming back to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Okay. 
So if I wanted to understand kind of what's going on, then right away you understand that, hey, this is not just about Mexicans crossing the border. Okay, so now you're talking about Venezuelans and all different types of groups, including some Africans that are in the migration as part of the illegal immigration wave. So you have different groups involved, okay? And what's going on is they're showing up at the Mexican border mostly and, hey, I'm a refugee. Hey, look at me. I'm a refugee. If I go back home, I will be persecuted. I will be arrested. It's dangerous for me to go back home. Okay. So there's a loophole where anybody, right, can come over to the United States and, right, you're on the border and, like, you see them 10,000, 20,000, 5,000 deep. Go ahead and catch me. I don't care if you catch me because if you catch me, hey, I want to file for asylum. Okay. So if the person files for asylum, again, hey, I'm a refugee. I can't go back home. They're going to hurt me. That person right now is distributed into a process where the majority get let go and they're now can stay in the country for about four years. Most are released out into the public. Okay. So the loophole that's going on here is it doesn't matter if the person gets caught. Okay. Because the person is going to plead asylum, the person, most are going to be let go. And now they start a four-year process. Okay. And of course, the Biden administration yesterday, of course, they're getting work permits, get these people to work. If you're curious about this in terms of this loophole, for some of the people who are talking about immigration reform, you would really need to look at the 1951 Refugee Convention. And so when you research that you would need the United States to pull out of it, most likely that when I talk about, hey, there's something funny going on here. You see all this people talking about legal immigration or Fox News and all this other stuff, right? If you take a step back, just go ahead and Google it. The 1951 Refugee Convention, you don't see anybody talking about pulling out of that. Uh, and so when when someone shows up or thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions show up and say, look, I'm a refugee. I want to apply for asylum. And then they get released out. They have a four-year process. Once you're in, most of them are in. You would have to do something about the 1951 Refugee Convention. And so if you were just to Google and do some research, you see that not even Republicans are pushing against the 1951 Refugee Convention. Okay. So there are kind of some some legal and policy things you would need to to start to deal with the messy border and migrant situation. And so when I say that something is funny with how America handles the the legal immigration problem where millions and millions of people are coming over here, is it really as simple as, hey, we need to stop because they're taking all the the benefits, right? That we just need to stop it because the Democrats want it because they get more votes or they're taking all the money and the jobs from the American people. They're taking a lot of jobs from black Americans. So there's different arguments out there. But if you take a step back and say, it makes me think about, and white man can't jump. They were playing games on the court. They were hustling. They were scamming. 
And one of the participants, the brother said, all of y'all are crazy. Okay, I'm going to go back into my car and get my gun. And the stuff was looking funny to him. But here with illegal immigration, okay, the stuff is not like 350 border agents, but this stuff is a, a real big problem. What's going on here? Why are you bragging about 350 border agents when millions of people are coming over here? Okay. And on the Republican side, if you guys are so much against illegal immigration, why aren't you guys talking about the 1951 Refugee Convention? Because most likely we're going to need to pull out of that or something has to be reworked. Because you can't just have everybody coming over here, showing up, talking about, hey, I'm a refugee. If I go back, I'm going to be persecuted. You're going to need something. If you're really serious about this subject, then I should see logical steps in the right focus areas for you to start to go down that direction. So if I don't see that, then I'm going to say, hey, this looks funny and I need to do some more research. And so to that point, you really have to look at the possibility that both parties are in on the immigration policy in terms of the the leakage or the slippage at the border. So it would be a rational estimation to say that they can't, both Democrats and Republicans, they can't come out to the public and some of the people who are running this country. They can't tell you all the truth. But when you look at both of the parties and their focus areas, you may realize that there are people in the party that they may have posturing that they're against illegal immigration, but there's an acceptable number of people that need to come into this country to support the economy, okay, the productivity, the efficiency of the economy. So this country, they're going to need populations and groups at the bottom, right? So of course, there's no more slavery, free labor, but you need low-wage labor in this country to make the system more efficient. Okay. So anybody who's telling you, oh, the legal immigrants are, are taking everything away. They're taking all the resources. That's half of the story to what Eric Adams is talking about. That's real, uh, particularly when you push it to a particular city in a short amount of time. But okay, the rulers in this country, they have this stuff out on a spreadsheet. Okay. So they're going to be calculating how this stuff is going into social security that's pretty much estimated to be bankrupt. They're going to be thinking about people coming into the tax system. They're going to be thinking about employment, the productivity. They're going to be thinking not just all oh, the immigrants, the migrants, they take away from the country. Okay. The money is the God of the United States. Okay. So when stuff starts looking funny, you got to start looking at how the money is moving. Okay. And then we have to be balanced. If you go into this and saying, look, they're taking all the jobs and they're taking all the Medicare and they don't pay taxes, you're never going to understand this situation at the level that you need to understand it. You need to understand it as the rulers in the country understand it. Okay. So they are looking at all the positives and what the country needs. Okay. They can't tell you we need illegal immigration. Yeah. We need it. And this is helping the machine work. You may not like it. It may look like the border is just being overrun and all this other stuff, but we need that illegal immigration. That's making the cost low. Okay. That may be helping us with inflation in certain areas where the price of your products, the pricing on the jobs and the wages, they're suppressed. 
It's making America more competitive. So we're not looking at it from a one factor, uh, a one factor profile. We're adding up all this stuff. Okay. We got the biggest economy and we're looking at how everything is connected. You may not be ready to handle it. Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Barack Obama or Biden, they may not be able to look America in the eye and say, look, I got to look like this, like I'm tough on legal immigration, this and that, but we got to have it. Okay. It's actually in the long-term planning of the country, we need it when you add everything up. And so the, this is why you can't expect the leaders of the United States to be truthful with you. So on one hand, a lot of people and their fans and the voters, they wouldn't be able to handle the truth politically, right? But you see that there has to be something funny going on where, you know, there's millions and millions of people coming over as years go by. There's millions and millions of people coming over, just 470,000 Venezuelans coming over. And Biden says 350 agents. But with the Republicans, you don't hear them talking about the 1951 Refugee Convention. So in the United Kingdom, when I looked at this, they are talking about it. They are talking in that we have to start reworking how we think about asylum and refugees, that these people may have to go to another country where under this convention, they need to go to a safe country. And so Biden, he ripped up, the Biden administration ripped up Trump's stay in Mexico policy that, hey, you guys can stay in Mexico and work out that asylum. You're not going to work that out over here in Chicago, New York City, in you know Dallas or Houston or Los Angeles. While you guys are working through the asylum process, you guys do it from Mexico. So Biden ripped that up. And what the Biden administration said, it doesn't help solve the root of the problem. But to me, again, when somebody says something like that, we're hey, we got to start dealing with the root of the problem. This is like, if somebody tells me that, I think they're playing games because this is something that would take a long time. It sounds unachievable, right? This is somebody, I would think that they want the people to come in, okay? They may want a certain number of people to come in, but they can't really tell the public that. And so when I say be careful about some of the uh, superficial narratives about legal immigration, let's take the MAGA side. So the MAGA side is like, hey, there's a conspiracy theory where you want more illegal immigrants to come over because the Democrats need votes. Okay. But when you really look at it, let's take Venezuela. So a place like Doral in South Florida, the Venezuelans are moving towards Trump. Hispanics, the, the research shows that more and more as time goes on, the Hispanic population in the United States, they're moving towards Trump. Okay. So, you know, this idea that because someone is a legal immigrant or a migrant, that means they're going to be pro-democratic party. The research does not support that. That if, if millions and millions of people come over here to the United States from Venezuela, Ecuador, and these different countries, it's a coin flip of which party, which side that they're going to be on. So that conspiracy is suspect on multiple fronts. So moving on, in the 90s, we were taught, we were conditioned, we were programmed. Many Black Americans were programmed by our leaders, by the culture into this black and brown thing. Black and brown, black and brown. You'll see politicians talk about black and brown, black and brown. 
But, you know, as I looked at this more and thought about it, you know, you realize over time, like you heard stuff when you were younger, you heard it over and over and you started just accepting it, believing it, black and brown, black and brown. There's a black and brown alliance. But I never really critically thought about that. Just in probably in the last five years, I started thinking about that. That when I look at that in terms of what was popular and programmed yesterday in the 90s and during the Obama administration, the black and brown, the black and brown, we're together. We got to stick together. Now, if I take a step back in terms of, hey, this is what everybody was saying, but if I take a step back and look at it mathematically, scientifically in 2023, you know, this is spook that there's no terms, right? When you say that we have an alliance, you need to tell me what are the terms of the alliance? Uh, don't just tell me something that sounds good. Some politician wants to rally the base to give votes and, you know, it sounds good. You could talk to multiple people at once. It's efficient as a communication tool. Don't just tell me that there's some type of black or brown alliance. We got to be more specific. Okay. What are the terms of this alliance? What do we get and what do they get? Okay. Because when I look into it, right, there's no real terms to this so-called alliance, right? You're telling me we're in this thing together. But when I look at the research, when I just don't take things on face value, I see that 58% of Hispanics are opposed to reparations, okay, according to a 2021 Pew Research study. So you're telling me that millions and millions of these immigrants are going to come over and the educational systems are not going to teach them the truth about our situation here in the United States, our history, right? So first is when the children come over, they're not going to be, they're, they're, they're even pulling stuff out of the, the classrooms now that really kind of tell you a little tiny bit of the truth of the history of the United States as it relates to Black Americans. But if these people are indoctrinated into American education, American media, okay, that if they don't come over here anti-Black just from their own countries, right? If they don't have that orientation towards us, you know, it's a logical estimate that they are going to turn into political opposition. Okay. It's likely that when hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people are coming over in the border, that these people, in terms of the next generations, okay, they're going to be hostile to the political interests of Black Americans. And so one way to improve our politics is to be very long term, right? We know scientifically that when people, groups and organizations, when they think long term, they have a higher probability of success. And so when you're thinking about these groups, and there's nothing against any particular group, because when I'm talking about immigrants, I'm talking about black immigrants too, African immigrants too. I'm talking about all immigrants. Okay. So if somebody's in a particular box where it sounds like they're against a certain group, I'm talking about black immigrants too. Okay. Black illegal immigrants too. Okay. So you have to think that as these people are processed into the United States system, and we see that it's kind of like a coin flip now. A lot of them are going over to MAGA. Okay, more and more of the Hispanic voters are going over to MAGA, like more and more Black Americans are going over to, to MAGA. But we cannot assume that these people coming over 
that there are friends because of their nationality, okay, Bef- but because of their ethnicity, because of the country they came for, their their brown skin. So that means they're going to be aligned with our political interests. Okay, we can have some form of black and brown alliance, but we have to talk about the terms, okay? And are these groups who are coming over here, are they going to subvert and acknowledge and understand the history and the context that the black American is working in? If someone says, hey, they're, you know, they're going to be on our side, I'm betting against that. You're going to have to prove to me that these groups are going to be aligned with black American interests. So if we don't have the organizations and the leadership who would be negotiating these alliances, and it's some type of like a religion where we just believe in some type of mythical black and brown, then yes, that's going to, that, that's going to be what I would call political spook. Okay. There's no real alliance unless you can show me some type of terms of the deal. If you're telling me that the majority of these people are against reparations or are against the policies that we really care about, it's only a superficial alliance. Okay. It's not a scientific one. And so the black and brown stuff, that stuff needs to be reworked. There's some groups of Hispanics that we need to work with to achieve specific objectives. Okay. We don't have any friends out here but we can work strategically with specific groups who are aligned. We have terms, some type of term, some type of contract, right? I can work within that framework in terms of a black and brown alliance, but I can't work with the spook that you've been selling me for the past decades that all these groups are friends, just the fact that they're, they're brown. And going back to the 90s, our reaction was often... Man, they took it from Mexico. You know, they took the land from Mexico. They took it from the Native American. Okay, you're right. You know, that's fucked up what happened here in the United States. Okay, that you're right. But to the point of Eric Adams, like we we can't go back into history. So history itself and the ideology around it, that can be a form of spook too, because why would I be worrying about what happened to Mexico hundreds of years ago. And hey, that's fucked up that, you know, the the treaties and the contracts were were done that way. Well, what does that got to do with the daycare today? What does that have to do with the light bill for the brother in Detroit? What does that have to do with the single mother in Watts where, you know, she's working two jobs? What does the history have to do with what's the right thing to do today? And so we can be spooky if we get caught in the ass of history. We're looking at so much history, right? And talking about what was done in the past, but we're discounting what needs to be done today. Hey, all that stuff happened. You're right. The stuff that happened to them, stuff that happened to them over there, you know, the stuff that's going on in their countries, what America has done, imperialism, all that stuff you guys talking about, you're a hundred percent right. But what does that got to do with the people in Harlem uh, that have a billions of dollars of budget missing. We can't fix that today, right? We got to fix the budget and we have to be above ground. You know, there's people out here in Jackson, Mississippi that don't even have 150,000. The whole, almost the entire city of Jackson, Mississippi was without water before, clean water before Coach Prime left Jackson State, right? So all this history stuff, you're right. But we can't go back and fix that, right? So we have to think clearly about 
the res- politics, of course, is a game of resource distribution. Okay. We have to optimize within the context that we see here, the resource distribution, local, state, federal. So people, you see the people protesting the black communities in Chicago protesting. You seeing people crank it up in New York City. These people are not, they're not going to buy into all this history. You want to talk about all these textbooks. That stuff is important. But today we got reality. We got reality. We got to deal with today. People got to eat today. People got to work today. People got to take care of their bills today. I'm going to keep my feet on the ground and focus on what's in front of me today. I need to focus on the material today. So so I'm going to leave this with the Venezuelans that are coming over here and everybody else that are coming over here, uh, including African immigrants, that we don't have the leadership, the political leadership, the educational leadership where these people can be, you know, they're getting processed for asylum. They are coming over here without being processed into the proper history and situation as it relates to freedom, justice, and equality for Black America. These people, they can be processed for asylum, but they're not processed for us. So more than likely that in the future, the Hispanic population, the majority, they're not going to be aligned with the political interests of Black Americans. And so we need to proceed accordingly. Again, and before I leave, 58% of Hispanics are opposed to reparations for Black American descendants of slavery, according to a 2021 Pew Research study. And so I'm going to leave this section with a clip. That's what I'm going to do. So when I say that there's something funny going on, you know, you'll notice that when Biden was talking in a very kind of slave master tone to his cherry picked civil rights leaders that he's willing to talk to, like Al Sharpton, are the leader of the NAACP. I'm going to play this clip. He's talking in a very condescending slave master tone. And you've seen this with Charlemagne too. You got to notice how Biden reacts when he's questioned from Black Americans. And so you could just get a sober mind. I know I got some Biden supporters out there in the audience, but just take a step back and look how he talks to the people who are his friends, okay, how he talks to the leaders, like he knows what's best for us. We have no right to question him about us. Look at the tone that he talks to his handpicked leadership, okay? And also the clip was leaked, so he didn't think it was going to get out. But this is how he talks to people behind the scenes, And you have to call in the question, like, what type of people is he dealing with that just take that type of disrespect? They're going to play their position. But luckily, there's somebody that is on this press conference, not press conference. They're on the Zoom call. They leak it. They know this field slave, this field Negro who was part of this civil rights leadership thing on Zoom. They have a problem with it, and more of them should have had a problem with it. But they leak this particular audio. But you hear him talk about how we have to start working with the Hispanic population because they're population numbers now. Okay, so he's putting the risk and the burden on us now. After all the work, all the voting, you niggas better start working with the Hispanics. I'm going to let Biden speak for himself. Here you go. 
where it was overwhelming because we spoke to those concerns. And Vanita, you know what I'm talking about. You and I have talked before. I don't carry around a stamp on my head saying progressive and I'm AOC, but I have a more of a record of getting things done in the United States Congress than anybody you know, anybody you know of getting things accomplished. And that sounds so self-serving. I know that, but this is going to really be hard. This is going to really, really, really be hard. And let me conclude and turn it over to Kamala, who says, what the hell am I doing with this guy right now? But all kidding aside, I've known you my whole life, most of you. I've worked in my whole life, most of you. I've been around doing this for a long, long time. I don't always get it right, but I always take responsibility. When I get it wrong, I acknowledge I got it wrong. But my overarching objective, if we cannot make significant progress on racial equity, this country is doomed. It is doomed, not just because of African-Americans, but because by 2040, this country is going to be minority white European. Hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics, who make up a larger portion of the population than you all do in terms of raw numbers. We're going to have to be working with a whole group of people that, in fact, are the single most diverse democracy in American history and anywhere in the world. And we got to figure out how to unify this country. And you've been the leaders of each.